Hello, and welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode of the podcast number 213. For example, if, it, if the goal were economic sabotage and the attack were carried out through combines at harvest time in the Midwest, it would be devastating. Right. Just as they have in other sectors of the economy, technology and digital transformation are remaking the agricultural sector. The image of farm life in the early 20th century looks something like Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men, where teams of migrant workers like the characters George Milton and Lenny Small labored under close human supervision to bring in the harvest. In 2021, however, George, Lenny, and pretty much everyone they worked with is gone. Their work is now mostly performed by mechanized, internet-connected, and GPS-guided equipment that can sow, tend, and harvest crops with astounding speed and accuracy. That technological revolution, driven by companies like the U.S. agricultural giant John Deere, has made U.S. farms some of the most efficient and profitable in the world. Food production in the United States has also become highly concentrated, an Open Market Institute report from 2019 found extreme concentration in areas like meat production and dairy. In just one statistic noted in the report, there were close to 650,000 dairy farms operating in the United States in 1970. Today, there are just 40,000. So what do we have? A handful of companies responsible for producing the lion's share of U.S. food and doing it through heavy reliance on precision farming technology that runs on software. What's missing, according to researchers, is a healthy understanding of the digital risks that have come along as a byproduct of that digital transformation. In this episode of the podcast, we're digging deep on that issue. Our guest this week is Molly John. She's a program manager at the Defense Sciences Office at DARPA and a faculty member at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's also a co-author of a 2019 report for Lloyds of London on evolving risks in the global food supply. In this conversation, Molly and I talk about how the U.S. food system has become so vulnerable to cyber attack, what a coordinated attack to compromise food production in the U.S. might look like. We also discuss steps that the federal government could take to address cyber risks to food and agriculture. If you were to sort of prioritize or categorize the risks to food and agriculture as a critical infrastructure sector, what's at the top and... um, and you know where where should we be focusing our resources and attention? So that's a great question. And while I am not an infrastructure or supply chain person, uh, I have enough common sense to know that that's a really important question, and that it is so important that we should try to answer it using standard creditable practices (laughs) that will both explore the uh, dimensions of these vulnerabilities that are capable of capturing cascading effects. So one one of the most important things to understand about cyber events are that they they, they have the potential to cascade. And many of our risk assessment approaches are by definition, limited to one sector. So it's it becomes impossible using typical method to portray the range of cascading effects. They spill across our bureaucratic boundaries in a way that becomes very difficult to aggregate. So while that is a really great question, we don't have good ways of assessing, objectively assessing, 
and prioritizing because of this issue of the mismatch of our fragmented bureaucracy versus the nature of threats that cyber can create. So, uh, you know, great example would be an issue in the banking system would clearly affect the ability of food to move. But that's not a feature of a financial attack that is generally considered and vice versa. And the Maersk hack is a, the Maersk hack of 2017 is a, is a very important object lesson. We think it was not, it was a collect, it was collateral damage of an act of war by Russia against Ukraine. And this escaped ransomware then moved around the world and happened to catch Maersk the world's largest shipping company, uh, with which the U.S. DOD has done trillions and trillions of dollars of business in the last 10 or 15 years, hit Maersk and uh, locked up every computer in the system with the exception of one that was unplugged from the wall in Africa. And so for 10 days, the world's largest shipping company could not locate its ships, could not load or unload them. It was a staggering illustration of how many contingencies and dependencies there are in these globalized uh, systems of trade that have been optimized for peacetime, relatively stable environmental conditions, and efficiency, mm-hmm. and have not been constructed resilience or bad guys or principles that one might think human beings would insist on in systems upon which we literally rely for life and civil stability. So, I mean, my story is looking at, I take kind of one little data point, which is that John Deere, obviously, you know, $180 billion agricultural equipment giant with very sophisticated internet-connected software-driven machinery, doesn't have a single CVE on the NIST common vulnerabilities and exposures list. And John Deere isn't alone, neither does Case, IH, or any of its competitors, right? So this is interesting to me. And then I'm also hearing from uh, independent security researchers who are kind of looking at John Deere, at my John Deere, their web-based portal to develop applications on top of their platform, that basically the company has no stated vulnerability disclosure policy, no clear mechanism to report security flaws to the company or kind of the internal wherewithal and infrastructure to be able to process those. So he's trying to report things and they're telling him to contact the social media team and, you know, just crazy, crazy in 2021 for a $180 billion a year company to be this at sea about a very basic function of operating a connected System of machinery. And add the feature of reality for John Deere, which is that unlike many industries, there is extreme seasonality in the way John Deere's implements are used. And so instead of normal industries where you take something out like Maersk and it's down for nine days and it's back up and there's some ability to catch up, we can easily imagine yeah. timed interference, either with right. planting or harvest, right. that could be devastating, right. Right? right? And it wouldn't have to persist very long right. at the right time of year 
or in if it were launched during a natural disaster, so compound event, which is one of the classic tricks I use in devising these scenarios, is I make so-called compound events, right. reasonably likely things happening at the same time. To see that, for example, if, it, if the goal were economic sabotage and the attack were carried out through combines at harvest time in the Midwest, it would be devastating and unrecoverable. Right depending on the details. It does seem to me that, as we saw happen with in the automobile industry as well, that, that these manufacturers have forged ahead quite aggressively to have basically real-time connectivity via GPS, uh, via cell or, or satellite connections. Obviously, they're, they're sending and receiving terabits of data, agricultural data, as well as software updates to and fro, but have not necessarily to the best of our knowledge, done the kind of risk analysis and security assessments of these of this equipment that we might assume they did. So that would seem to be a huge problem. And I guess the question is, what is the role of like a, a DHS or a CISA or uh, you know Department of Agriculture maybe even to say, hold on a second, you know, like you said, we, we can foresee some not Petya type situations here that could be devastating to us and we need to get a standard level of, of protection and care here. So, uh, great question. Um, and the, I have to say, from my point of view, the the remark that one of my colleagues in government, when I realized there was some significant financial corruption in a system the United States government depends on to send back data, enumerated data about soil moisture and market prices from outside the U.S., I called up my friend who receives those data and I said, Jim, do you ever scrub your digits for fraud? And he said, no, why would anybody mess with me? And of course, the point wasn't (laughs) that they were going to mess with the guy doing Receiving the data, the point was it was disguising massive financial corruption. And so, in general, I think we have opened up these dependencies without thinking about the potential liabilities uh, that can occur. And cyber is is a great example. Uh, So, these are vulnerabilities that uh, are not by any stretch unique to food and agriculture. And Department of Homeland Security has is where responsibility for this resides, certainly in the United States. Uh, there is a trio, actually, of co-chairs, one from FDA, one from USDA, and one from the National Milk Producers Federation, who operates essentially as a quasi-public servant in this role. These are the three that uh, took us through COVID with as as minimal disruption as possible. It would have been much worse if it hadn't been for their efforts. There are uh, a a number of sector-specific teams and Food and Ag is a formal sector of critical infrastructure. There is a critical infrastructure protection plan that was last updated in 2015. There is a push to get that updated, but no action at present. Very concerning. The uh, president put into force an executive order, I believe it was February 24th of this year, requesting uh, reviews of 
a number of supply chains critical for the United States economic uh, and national security, food being on that list. And as of yesterday, no clear action was apparent to any of us in the DHS, DOD, USDA space. And several of us are in the process of working hard to try to figure out where that locus of responsibility is going to reside and how to support it, how to best support it. There is a government- In other words, nothing much has been done following that order? Is that so there's a concern that uh, a year is a short time to do such a review. Interestingly, there are several universities that are taking action in anticipation of the importance of this issue. And I would love to give University of Illinois a shout out. They have founded a new food system security center. All right, Iowa State and the Consumer Brands Association did a just recently released a general report. My understanding is Consumer Brands Association is pushing really hard for a response to that executive order. But at present, that team has not been identified. And, and so it's not having the impact we'd ha we would have hoped. There is a regular meeting of these, of these sector leads. Uh, however, uh, that regular meeting was suspended as a result of the pandemic. And I don't believe that regular meeting has been reinstated. That was the one place where cross-team conversations occurred. And it was the forum hosted by CISA, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure security agency that CISA. It was the one way that cross-sector scenarios, that is these cascading kinds of events, were exercised. And my understanding is for the last five years or so that those activities have trailed off. So maybe from 2010 to 15, there were periodic large-scale exercises, but that those have stopped. And about 2017, DHS made the decision to stop funding some very uh, some work I have very high regard for at Sandia National Laboratory and uh, at some other locations on food and agriculture with assumption that the responsibility fell elsewhere in government. But as far as I can tell, it does not. There is USDA is a collection of agencies, none of which has this responsibility, with the exception of an office called the Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Coordination, which is a very, very small office, like maybe just a handful of people. So at present, in my opinion, there is a gap in the sort of mosaic of government Going back to where I started, saying that we don't have a concept of food systems. So other than that government coordinating council in the food and ag sector, which has been cut way back on funding since 2017, I remain concerned. Uh, and this is the problem I cut sight of literally 10 years ago when I was at USDA. So if you were uh, if you were kind of food czar or something, how would what would you do? Like, how would you uh, structure the government's response to this issue? Well, first, I would leverage the incredible amount of work and insight and experience we have from cyber cyber security in general. We still haven't necessarily cracked 
defensive strategies that protect us nearly to the extent we would like to. And that's actually one of the areas of interest that brought me to DARPA. One of my sidelines over the last 10 years is I have been brought in as someone who makes scenarios, which also makes me a pretty diabolical so-called red teamer. Mm -hmm. So obviously red teaming is a really important activity that helps us check our defenses and helps us learn about prospective offensive strategies, especially those without precedent. Mm -hmm. And so one of the, my areas of interest is how to update our approaches to red teaming so that we're better prepared for what has not yet happened, but is adjacent and possible to what has happened. And uh, so I would find a locus of uh, and presumably it's the Government Coordinating Council for Food and Agriculture Sector at DHS-CISA, and uh, empower that with budget, because at present, DHS is, my understanding is DHS is generally not investing in food and agriculture with the understanding that it, or with the assumption that someone else is doing that. Someone, it's USDA's problem. I believe the USDA secretary is very, very aware of this. I know he is, actually. And I know that in his office there is an intent to get that task force rolling. So I would get that task force rolling because I think the executive order is an excellent instruction and it should be attended to and supported across government. There is lots of nitty-gritty technical work to build out risk assessment infrastructure. To your point, uh, standards are not in place. There are many nuts and bolts things that we haven't even enumerated in a comprehensive way. And we certainly haven't had the means or the will to do the kind of exploration and prioritization that you asked for. Uh, very reasonable request. Um, and so I think there are a number of us that went to work when COVID hit to shore up our supply chains. <laughs> I sit in Blue Mounds, Wisconsin, and uh, when COVID hit in March, I realized there was nobody in my old job at USDA, so I literally started acting like the undersecretary <laughs> from here in my home office, making phone calls, working to divert dump milk and back into the food supply chain, and in particular to food assistance. It was all hands on deck. It was very much piecemeal. To to totally as a volunteer, basically. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. As a, as a faculty member at the University of Wisconsin. And likewise, it was colleagues from dairy co-ops and a company that does inventory control in supermarkets. We just pieced ourselves together and did our best to support the government colleagues who were dealing with shortages of pipette tips. One place where it became clear that something we have not attended to has I think great potential implications, and that is that during COVID, we saw, among other things, a great deal of, of disruption in meat supply chains, and in particular in pork. Smithfield, the world's largest pork company, is owned by the Chinese. In fact, as I understand it, by an organization that traces straight into the Chinese military. And my word of, word of mouth, 
uh, I don't vouch for the accuracy of this, but what I was told was that while there were massive shortages in the United States, so for the first time in our lives, we saw bare shelves in supermarkets, exports from the United States to China of pork spiked 30%. We have ceded ownership of these companies to a foreign entity, essentially to a foreign military. And likewise, uh, one of our country's largest seed companies is in the same situation. So I think we have not, as a nation, systematically considered these risks and threats. I think it is really obvious that it's extremely important. It cannot be argued that food is one of the shortest fuse items. When food supply is interrupted, it doesn't take people very long to get really grumpy. One of the issues that, that was raised in, in my reporting by security researchers, and this is this exists as well in the automotive industry, in, in the automotive cyber, but really serious in agricultural, is just that with systems like uh, Apple or Android or Mac OS or Windows, these are consumer technologies. Everybody can get their hands on them either free or very cheaply. But with a combine, uh, that costs a million dollars new, and a tractor costs you know $400,000 new. Even well-resourced cybersecurity companies don't have the, the means to acquire those. So one thing that he suggested was kind of a test range uh, that the government could um, set up for some of these uh, very expensive products for security researchers to come in and, and test, pen test, and, and, and go at. Is that something that, does the government do that in any way? Well, the DHS report is a good sign that there's awareness of this issue and uh, concern. I believe there's some recommendations in there, but I don't believe that this is done systematically at this time because the responsibility for that activity is not clear. And it's a big job, and any good federal bureaucrat is highly sensitized to fending off unfunded mandates which, by the way, this task force, as I understand it, is. And so from a federal bureaucrat's point of view, being handed a very large and important unfunded mandate is a huge problem because you don't have the means to discharge the responsibility. And so the, nat the only action a person in that position can take is to try to fend off the responsibility, which means there's an ugly baby in the middle of the floor that no one wants to touch. And I would argue that one of the things that tenure at a university has allowed me to do is go pick up that ugly baby. And uh, we've written a number of, of reports, including As the white know, kids. There are no ugly babies, right? <laughs> exactly. It's my ugly baby. <laughs> exactly. No such thing. Great. But, you know, it's, I'll just say one thing that's quite interesting to me, going all the way back to World War II. Um, when you, the U.S. was such an important, one of the U.S.'s most many important contributions to the war effort and the success of the Allies was that we fed the Allies for the duration of the war. When the U.K. Minister of Food came over in 1939 before the U.S. was in the war to find the U.S. Minister of Food because Britain was facing famine, he couldn't find his counterpart because there isn't one. And so it's fascinating to see in the history of World War II what was done to compensate 
for that right. deficit in the way we, I would argue it's a deficit, in the way we perceive these systems and their importance. But all that infrastructure was systematically dismantled after World War II, and none of it exists right. now. In fact, it's uh, there are probably about three of us that even know anything about these, this thing called the Combined Food Board, which was given authority, overriding sovereign authority, to make decisions about distribution of food globally that literally saved the, saved the war effort. And so I think we've got lessons learned, although in the past, as to how important this may be, and a lot of uncharacterized risk in the system, although have a look at evolving risk in global food supply from Lloyd's of London, we're doing our best to raise these issues in an orderly way in organizations whose decisions about, for example, what risk they will underwrite can really shape the risks that are tolerated in the market. And so absent a really efficient and functional Congress, <laughs> I felt that by far the sort of most effective theory of change that I, to which I could contribute was to go to those financial rule makers, inform them of risks that I perceived as an expert, and so warned they are obligated to adjust their practices, such as compulsory scenario and based stress testing, to take some of these risks into account. It's a very slow process. Uh, but that's where we're driving, is that uh, Lloyd's of London, for example, maintains a set of scenarios called realistic disaster scenarios. And they're compulsory stress tests for any company that wants to trade in the Lloyd's market. So getting a threat on that list, which is what I've been working on in food systems, is one way to socialize the, the risks and begin in an orderly way to build out the sort of technical infrastructure needed to assess, manage, transfer that risk uh, in responsible ways. And until that time, as one person said to me when I, uh, I was giving a talk at a huge agribusiness company a few years ago to, as part of a company-wide celebration, said to me, you know, Molly, we would really love to do the right thing, but as long as it costs us one extra penny this quarter, if my competitors aren't doing that, I'm dead. I'm dead that quarter. I'm not dead out there. I, I would love to mitigate that risk out there. But until, unless it doesn't cost me anything, I can be hurt locally for doing the right thing if it in any way affects our earnings quarter to quarter. And so top cover is really important in creating a safe place to have these discussions. That is uniquely a government role in the United States. And I really hope this executive order could be an excuse for us to do a better job. Certainly there are willing and very able and very dedicated colleagues in a number of locations across the US government who care about this issue and understand it both from the cyber side and from the infrastructure side. But we, we haven't yet gelled in a co with the coherence that I think the set of threats and the priority of this infrastructure require.
Okay, final question, because I know you, you probably got to go. So you're a red teaming expert. Give me a scenario that you might uh, throw out uh, regarding cyber threats to agriculture. Well, the, the sort of no-brainer one is, let's say it is peak harvest in the United States, and uh, let's say a state has a desire to either inflict economic damage or has a geopolitical priority where having the U.S. sidelined would be advantageous, such as taking over Taiwan, let's say. Even a relatively short-term event, timed properly, could be devastating for the rest of that year, not, not only divert the United States' attention away from perhaps some other action, but it could it would cause lasting economic damage and loss since US uses food exports so heavily for soft power. You know, a three week, let's say a three week down uh, downtime for US combine would cause enormous damage. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe, I don't know uh, of a study that's actually tried to add that up to gain that out. But that would be, that's a class, that's just a, 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 a easy, easy one to, to think about. There are many other stories one could dream up, but the, the classic one I think is to do a timed interruption mm -hmm. uh, where you have just a few different kinds of machines on which the entire harvest depends at a particular time. Like that's a bottleneck that is just very obvious. Molly John is a program manager in Defense Sciences Office at DARPA and a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. 